0: I'm Kate Daniels. Mental health and challenges with it are always with us. And hopefully during this pandemic time, we have found that we need to face this head on. To underscore this, we are first meeting Kevin Peterson, a family addiction psychotherapist and author of Chronic Hope, Families and Addiction. Kevin Peterson, good morning. It's so great to have you join us this morning and and talk some really important life lessons here.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honored.
0: Well, I'm the one who feels so grateful and appreciative because there's always the desire to help people in any kind of circumstances. And here this morning, we're talking about addictions in families for individuals, but kind of within family units and still in this time of the epidemic, when things have actually kind of pushed this more into a crisis situation, if it wasn't already.
1: Absolutely, what's happened is that um, people have turned to self-medication at higher levels than we've ever seen before, and and because everyone's been contained, um, I think it's becoming more obvious. You know, before people might be able to hide it or you know, do it outside the house or do it elsewhere, but now everyone's sort of right on top of each other. So all of a sudden it's it's becoming um, an, a bigger issue than it already is, which it is a big issue to begin with.
0: Exactly. So one of the things about the big issue is to right up front say, help, seeking professional help should probably be one of the key things to do.
1: Absolutely. And that's, um, and the and the book that I wrote, Chronic Hope, Parents, or sorry, Families and Addiction, I wrote two, okay. <laughs> this, this this one really outlines the process of how to go about getting that help. It's, it's sort of a step-by-step plan. And, you know, the first step is engaging with someone that understands addiction and codependency in the family system, and then following through with boundaries, accountability, and structure with the person that's struggling. And... and it's not the old school methodology of tough love. It's more along the lines of, I love you. I want to help you, but I'm not going to tolerate this behavior anymore. And if you continue to choose drugs and alcohol, then we're going to have to put some boundaries around you and keep you disengaged from us because we, we're we not going to let your addiction destroy our family. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, y- coming from really that, that place of compassion and empathy, but yet having very strong boundaries about it.
1: Absolutely. And also having a solution in mind. You know, it's, it's saying, you know, uh, we want to help you and help you find a solution. But if your choice is to continue to, to follow your addiction, then we can't help you. And we're not gonna, we're not going to let that continue to take everybody down with it. But if you ever want help, if you ever want to choose sobriety, we'll we'll do everything we can to get you there.
0: So let's go back to the book, uh, mm-hmm. your latest book, Chronic Hope: Families and Addiction, because here's a a good first step for for family members, for for anyone really, friends of the family, uh, relatives to to get some inside knowledge and to perhaps walk alongside and, and support who, you know, all members of that family unit.
1: Absolutely. Uh, The the first question I get uh, from people when I work with them is what's the first thing I can do to help my my family member that's struggling. And I'd say, well, the first thing you can do is take care of yourself and get into your own recovery and, and pay attention to what the family system needs. Because if we can heal the entire family system and get away from things like enabling and codependence, um, we can change the way the family behaves and the way the family reacts. And one of my favorite phrases is, you're not responsible for your loved one's addiction, but you are responsible for how you respond to it.
0: Good point, yes. So then we can have that some sense of, of power here rather than feeling victimized.
1: Absolutely, and and it's about it's about allowing the family to, to work together to solve the problem. And and you know I, I tend to break it up into three phases. There's the, the initial phase, which is triaging, which is before someone goes to treatment, and it's setting up the plan, setting up the boundaries, potentially setting up an intervention, picking a treatment center, and getting that person to a place where they can get help. But then the second phase is uh, really taking a long hard look at the family and helping the individual family members heal their wounds as well, you know. And then the third phase is reunifying everybody back together and working on how we're going to change things. You don't want to send somebody to treatment for 30, 60, 90 days and then bring them home to a system that hasn't changed. That's kind of a recipe for disaster.
0: And so hopefully in um – a situation where there is some professional help uh, for the individual, or maybe it's more than one individual, then there should be something also going on simultaneously to help the rest of the family, correct?
1: Absolutely. I'm a huge advocate of the family taking care of themselves. And through family case management, which is what I offer uh, nationally and also uh, family therapy, which can be done locally Um I believe in the 12-step programs. Uh, it can be faith-based. Um, it can be whatever the family needs to do to heal themselves. One of my other favorite phrases is, <laughs> "Happy families come from happy individuals. Happy individuals work on their stuff, and everybody has stuff, and it, and it's okay. It's okay to have stuff to to address and to deal with. And a lot of times, it's generational. You know, when we have addiction and codependency in the family system." rarely is it the first time we've ever seen it in the family system more often than not it's generational and it's been playing through and it's become sort of the way the family operates and so we have to sort of tease that apart and 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 that so it's not just about addressing the addiction it's about addressing the family and the way the family handles it
0: and thank you for mentioning that because i was thinking about that aspect of it being uh generational, that it doesn't necessarily mean that if uh, the grandfather is an alcoholic, the son and the grandson will necessarily be, but there's going to be some kind of potentially addictive behavior.
1: Well, yes. And what you'll find is if the grandfather is an alcoholic or the grandmother, let's be fair. Yes,
0: <laughs> ab- <know>? absolutely. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. Um, what happens is the family, you know, the, so the, the spouse and the children of that grandparent will respond by altering their behavior to accommodate the alcoholism, you know, uh, in, in, in a lot of different, you know, whether it's, whether it's through enabling or, you know, people pleasing or ignoring it or, act, you know, or cleaning up the messes or caretaking. And then so then that generally what will happen is they'll start taking on the roles so of their job to take care of that person. And solve their problems and clean up their messes so then they're starting to pass that behavior patterns on so it's not just the addiction or the drinking it's the behavior pattern that goes around it with it and so when the next person shows up that may have some sort of addiction issue the 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 codependency behavior patterns start to flare up and then we start into this whole sort of you know um roller coaster merry go codependent merry-go-round where Nobody's really dealing with the actual problem. We're, just, we're all kind of running around putting out fires instead of getting proactive and saying, hey, we don't want to live this lifestyle anymore. One of the things I always like to tell people is it's time to get off the roller coaster, and, and you can choose that today. You can choose to get off the roller coaster and say, I'm not doing this anymore. I love you, and when you're ready to get help, I'll help you. But until then, I'm not in. I'm out. And, and I'm going to be over here. I'm not going to participate. And that's the hard part for the family members. Because like you just said, it's been generational. They think that's their job. And, and convincing them otherwise is horrible.
0: So there's the generational, yet I'm sure that we must have situations uh, that it's something new in a family that just all of a sudden we we notice uh, maybe more alcohol being consumed or maybe there is evidence of drugs and what would that is does that happen and what does that look like
1: yes it's just definitely generational and I mean we call we call addiction a progressive disease it doesn't get better it gets worse and so as it goes forward you know like you said so maybe the grandparent had a drinking problem and let's say now we have, you know, children that are experimenting with, you know, uh, methamphetamine or heroin or opiates or pills or marijuana and taking it to a, a deeper level. I mean, there's, there's certainly some, you know, much, much harder stuff available. One of the things I tell families when I first work with them is let's delineate that if somebody's drinking or using marijuana – We can can take one approach where we're going to try to set boundaries and hold them accountable, and it may take a couple of weeks or a month or so, um, depending on the severity, of course. But if they're using opiates or heroin or meth or cocaine or any one of those drugs, they could die the next time they use them. So we have to take a much different approach. It needs to be more drastic.
0: Oh, yes. and. And certainly we've seen too much evidence of this going on and we just don't want any more of those statistics or certainly start solving the problem.
1: Oh my gosh, you're totally right. I think in 2011, um, overdose deaths took over uh, as the number one killer of people under 30 away from car accidents. And uh, you know, that's, that's only gotten worse. It's not getting better. And, so What I try to do is create it's a systemic plan for families of how to deal with this and how to go about addressing this because, like you said earlier, they feel hopeless and, and they feel completely something it's foreign to them. They're like, we don't know what to do, and they tend to call you know, the priest, the minister, the rabbi, the pediatrician, the family doctor, maybe they're seeing a therapist. But if you're not trained in addiction and codependency and you don't have this life experience, It's a foreign concept. I grew up in a house of addiction. My mom was a prescription drug addict. Um, I became an addict and an alcoholic. I got sober on May 5th, 1991, and then I became a mental health professional. So I see this from all different sides. You know, I think the thing that's important is that you find someone that understands addiction and codependency in, in the structure of the family system. And I don't just mean clinically or intellectually. I grew up in a house of addiction. Uh, my mother was a prescription drug addict, and uh, I, and then around 13, 14, I started using drugs and alcohol, and I became an alcoholic and a drug addict myself, and then I, I got sober, and then I became a mental health professional. I've been sober since May fifth, nineteen 1991, and that gives me a unique perspective where I understand what it's like to be the family member. I, I understand what it's like to be the addict. I understand what it's like to be sober, and I understand what it's like to be the mental health professional. So when people come to me, I can give them, I understand, I have the empathy of understanding exactly what's going on and how they feel and the urgency of the situation. And that's why I give them a very direct plan on how to solve the problem. But part of that problem solving is dealing with the family, not just the addicts.
0: And your situation really is perfect in the sense of having lived the experience, having gotten the help to become a healthy, and then to be able to share. So you really come from a place of knowing, not just theory.
1: Exactly. And I think that's so important. And, you know, it's kind of sad because, I mean, I went to a phenomenal master's program at Regis University in Denver, and there was one substance abuse class offered. And, uh, you know, and I took it, and it was great. I enjoyed it. But, you know, when you really take a look at drugs and alcohol and the impact they have on our society... It's it's pretty much pervasive, and I think anyone who's going to be a therapist really owes it to themselves to pay attention and start looking at, you know, what's the usage like in the family system or the individuals that I'm working with. But the problem is they're not trained for it, and they don't have the experience like you just said.
0: Oh, we have so much that could be discussed and, and just <laughs> in, such insufficient time, but I think we at least are at a place of saying there are These problems exist. The addictions exist. If you find yourself in that situation, there's great help available. And certainly with your experience and your books, if someone's just trying to figure out where to go, learning from reading this and then seeking help would be a great way to go. So it's Chronic Hope Families and Addictions. And let's share your website.
1: Yes, it's chronichope.us. And we have an Apple podcast, uh, the Chronic Hope Institute. We have a YouTube channel, the Chronic Hope Institute. <laughs> we have Instagram, we have Twitter, we have a Facebook page where every month we do ask the questions and I answer them live. You know, the most important thing for us is uh, at the Chronic Hope Institute is offering people as many free resources as humanly possible and answering questions. And we want people to know there's a place they can go And get hope, you know, go from helplessness to hope, and that's really our motto.
0: Well, thank you for being that ray of hope and light in this world.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, and again, thank you so much for your time.
0: Now let's meet David Rabadi, a mental health advocate whose mission is to erase the stigma surrounding mental illness. He's also the author of a new book dealing with his experiences with bipolar disorder, and it is. How I Lost My Mind and Found Myself. David Rabadi, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: David, I just am uh, really uh, deeply grateful that you are so open and so honest. And uh, as a national speaker for NAMI, for the National Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health Advocate, as well as the author of your book, own biography, how I lost my mind and found myself. I mean, that is just just so much that you are doing in this very uh, special field of mental health and mental illness, where you are, are the strong voice, the strong advocate. So I feel that you are such a great voice and resource for us to be able to share about yourself and encourage others who might be, you know, hiding in you know, a kind of in the corner thinking, I can't talk about this. What do you say about, you know, I guess tying into your own experience to people who have, I guess it would be, let's call it shame about having some mental challenges?
2: Well, I would tell them not to have or feel that shame because there's no reason. It's a no fault illness. It's not like we did something. To uh, have this happen to us, um, or that it's—I think it's—and I know I felt the shame because in the beginning of my diagnosis, I was very really angry and and I guess hurt because I felt like no one would want to hire me, no one would want to date me because I have bipolar disorder—and I found all that to be false. Um, I think that we're worse. Uh, enemy when it comes to um, how we perceive ourselves and what we want out of our lives and things that we want to accomplish, and having mental illness can disturb some of those things because it interrupts the course of your life, and you have to take care of yourself so you shouldn't feel shame for needing help and wanting to get better. So I tell them to be easy on themselves and not to feel the shame and to find the courage to seek the help that they need because it's really no need to suffer in silence. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And you did suffer in silence for some time.
2: I did for a long time. Um, the interesting thing is I never knew I had bipolar disorder until I had my first psychotic episode. So for years, I just experienced high shifts in mood, like high energy, and then low energy, and I thought that was something that everyone went through. It wasn't until I was taking Adderall, which is an, an amphetamine that worsens the condition for people that are bipolar, because I didn't know I had bipolar disorder. I didn't know what I was doing to myself. And the doctor that prescribed Adderall, the reason why I was taking Adderall is I just wanted to lose 10 pounds, so I thought it was an appetite suppressant. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was for people that have ADHD. So... The doctor not running tests and doing an assessment to see if I had bipolar or, or um, he just really subscribed Adderall to me. And I just, I didn't do my research about it because I just thought it was an, uh, an uh, appetite suppressant. And I learned the hard way that it wasn't. And I had to deal with having a psychotic episode. And I was prone to having delusional thoughts. So um, in the beginning of my diagnosis, I was in a lot of shock and denial, and it wasn't until I had my second psychotic episode that I was just sincere for my life, and I felt like, okay, I have to be on medication for the rest of my life because I'm prone to having delusional thoughts now, and that disturbs the course of your life and your journey and things that you want to accomplish. So um, for me to live a productive life, I need to stay on medication.
0: So that is uh, an important piece of this, is to be aware that medications are going to be part of life. And you need to just accept that and not feel that there's just something very bad or negative about it, right?
2: Exactly. And, you know, I it took me a while to accept it. But one day I was uh, at my parents' house and my mom is a diabetic she was taking her insulin shot. And I remember thinking she has diabetes and she needs insulin to level out her sugars. She doesn't feel ashamed for having to take medication for her sugar levels being, you know, um, out of whack sometimes. So why do I have to feel ashamed for taking medicine that helps my mood stay stable? And it's like, where I guess media sometimes has a way of sensationalizing people with mental illness as being crazy or um, out of control or violent, and that's really false. Like, I am I have never had a physical altercation with anyone in my whole adult life, maybe one time in my teenage years, but I'm not a violent person. I don't go around uh, destroying things or having violent outbursts. So the disease affects everyone differently, and everyone has a different environment that they grew up in and what they're used to, and I I feel that the more education and the more people that want to share their stories will help lessen the stigma against mental illness, and people will start to realize it's not something to be ashamed of, and um, there's hope and that there's a productive life out there for you to live. and. You don't need to suffer in this
0: silence. I love your comparison with seeing your mother and the insulin she would need to take. I I think there's just such a direct correlation there in terms of medications can help us to balance out our life. So we need to embrace that we are living in this time when this is available to us.
2: Yes, and I think you have to ask yourself You have to ask yourself, if you're someone that has mental illness and suffers from either bipolar or schizophrenia or um, some people have both or have ADHD, do you want to live a productive life or do you want to live a scattered life that can be out of control and um, disturb anything that you're trying to accomplish or um, I guess – just not being stable and for me it was important to be stable it was important to have my independence it was important to be um, someone that's a part of the community and doing good for the community and living a fulfilled life so all that stuff was important to me and I realized that the only way for me to have it was to be on medication and my sister I remember in the beginning because I was very angry in the beginning and I didn't want to be on medication and I felt like I was robbed from my life and like it's it's almost like being in jail. My sister said, David, people take vitamins for their hair, their skin, um, their metabolism. She's just like, so why don't you use your medicine as taking vitamins for your brain? Hmm. Like it's just helping you. And when she said that, it kind of made me think about it differently. And I realized like I shouldn't be embarrassed of it. And it is vitamins for the brain. It's keeping me you know, in a level-headed mindset. Um, So I think that's important, too, the way you view yourself and the things that you need to do for yourself and better yourself. So um, I would just tell anyone, like, don't feel that shame or that embarrassment because it's really not something to feel ashamed or embarrassed about. We all need help at some time in our lives with any, any one thing or sometimes... Plenty of things, and there's no real reason to feel ashamed for seeking help.
0: Exactly. So that that's another piece of it, uh, which you've just underscored, is having uh, another advocate on your side, someone as your own cheerleader, to encourage you. That don't feel that you need to be going through this alone.
2: Exactly. And um, I think that, especially with this whole pandemic, mental illness has come into the forefront and we're having more of a conversation about it and more people are feeling, um, I guess, I guess a lot of anxiety now that people have to stay home and they have to not go to work and they couldn't go to school and they couldn't be social. So I think this pandemic has really brought out a lot of um, awareness for mental health issues. And it's the only positive thing that has happened, I think, Um, because before it was like, People did not want to talk about mental illness at all, and I'm on a mission. I want to make mental illness look so good that everyone wants it. Like, <laughs> I, just, I just want it to be a natural form of dialogue between people and people be open and honest. And with being open and honest, you're being good to yourself and kind to yourself and seeking the help that you need is just going to lead you to living a productive life
0: and here you are living proof of that there is this mental health condition bipolar disorder but it it is something that can be diagnosed and medications can be prescribed and you can as you are doing be living a, a very important productive life where it, part of your role here is to help others encourage the rest of us to see it in that in that light
2: uh Yes. And you know what's interesting? When I go to universities like and different colleges and share my story with the students, it's always interesting that like I get these students that want to talk to me in private because they can relate to some of the things that I was sharing. And it makes me feel good, but it also makes me feel sad that they're not comfortable to just openly ask the questions. They'll directly ask me in in person like personally not in front of the crowd and I just thought to myself when I was diagnosed with mental illness I was in a dark place and I was a very sad and very scary place but it wasn't until I heard someone speak at a NAMI workshop and he shared his story and he had the same condition that I had that it gave me hope and inspiration that I could have a productive life and he was in recovery he was in um recovery for about 10 years, like he didn't have any mental breakdowns. he was productive, he had a job, he got married, he served a family, and it gave me inspiration when he shared his story. So I just imagine what it would be like if we were all able to live our truth and tell our stories, how inspiring that would be for other people to hear, and what a difference it could make in the world.
0: Oh, right on. Exactly, David. That rather than thinking of it as something horrible to hide, think of it as maybe I am going to really help someone by sharing my story. I think that you've just proven that that is so core that we will help others and thus help ourselves. It's just a, you know, kind of an unending circle that keeps on, you know, moving up and getting greater.
2: Exactly, and all we can do is be kind to ourselves, educate ourselves, and like shame is so it's so crippling sometimes because when you feel shame, it's like you don't know what to do and you're embarrassed, and there's no reason for all that, and I think the biggest gift of all is helping others in life, and for me, it's very rewarding to share my story, to share my truth because I can help someone not make the same mistakes that I made or follow the difficult path that I followed that took me a while to come to acceptance and assurance and loving myself and just being, you know, I guess as a person that has mental illness, mental illness is not for weak people. Mm -hmm. It's a strong person to survive it and to get through it and it doesn't mean you're weak, and it doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means that you have a hiccup and, and along the way in life, and it's something that you can get medication for and treatment, and there's um, speak therapy, and there's like just so much you can do for yourself. And I think the biggest gift to yourself is self-love.
0: David, I have to say you are such an inspiration. I just love all that you are doing and how you're going about it and that you are really doing all that you can to make your life better. And in doing that, you're helping to make the world a much better place. So I am so grateful that you are willing to, to share your story and that you've spent time with us this morning. And I want to remind our listeners that they can learn more about your story and your mission to erase stigma around mental health uh, with your new book, How I Lost My Mind and Found Myself. Really great title, David. And your website is?
2: davidrabati.com And rabatis are for rabbit, A for Apple, B for boy, A for Apple, D for David, I for Ice.
0: <laughs> That's great. So thank you. You truly are such an inspiring person.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this.